So as we go to the scripture this morning, here's a, just listen to the depth of this. And, and let me just introduce it this way, that notice that this is the second chapter in the Gospel of John. That this whole story and the story that immediately follows this is to set the direction and the precedent for everything that is to follow in this gospel. And it begins with this wedding. Once Jesus is identified as the word becoming flesh, then we have this. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stout water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the wine, the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, he, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they remained there a few days. Holy wisdom, holy words. Thanks be to God. Now I have to assure you at the outset is... Dorothy and Bud are sitting over here, and it's their granddaughter who's getting married in April, and that we're working hard on the wedding. And the children are not going to be planning that. But I just want you to think about weddings in general, and, and particularly today, how much goes into the planning of a wedding. I, I mean, it's so complex. And what's so interesting is there comes a point in almost every premarital counseling where the couple looks at me and says... So, how long is the wedding? I said, about 40 minutes. We're doing all this for 40 minutes? And it's true. All of the costs, all of the receptions, all of the dinners, all of those things, all for a ceremony that lasts about 40 minutes in a Protestant wedding. It's a beautiful 40 minutes. It's a life-changing 40 minutes. It's a I will remember this for the rest of my life kind of 40 minutes, but it's still 40 minutes. It's not very long when it comes to what it refers to, which is spending the rest of your life together, potentially. Completely different in ancient Judaism. Completely different. And I want to talk about the four key elements first uh, and then what it has to do with this wedding feast that, that we just heard about, that Robin just read about. Four key elements in the ancient Jewish wedding. 
And the first was the contract. And I, I just want you to think for a minute that uh, about the fact that it was the father of the groom, potential groom, and the father of the potential bride who came to, together to negotiate this contract of marriage. And they examined each other's financial situation. They spent time looking at things. They negotiated all manner of things and finally came to an agreement that their children, son and daughter, would be married. And once all those details are worked out and written, and by the way, those children, those, they had nothing to do with any of it. But the fathers then signed the document which made those two married, period. And the only thing that would break that contract was infidelity. That's it. The contract is done. Here's the issue. Many of these negotiated contracts of marriage were, took place when the children were no more than 6 to 10 years old. I want you to, I want you to think about that for a second. <laughs> or even 11 or 12 years old. And so the next piece of it, which is the ceremony itself, wouldn't take place for years often after those contracts were signed. But those kids were married. Were married. And I want to remind us of a story that we heard about a couple months ago. A story that we're very familiar with about Mary and Joseph. And the worry that Mary had committed adultery. And that Joseph was going to divorce, divorce her quietly. But can you imagine what that would have done to the families? But then comes the ceremony. Second piece in this sequence of events that happen around Jewish weddings. The second piece, the ceremony, is a beautiful, simple ritual of, uh, uh, that symbolizes not only these two coming together to become one, but also these two coming together as two families becoming one and becoming one with God. Phenomenal uh, as each piece of the ceremony unfolds. It's just this beautiful kind of sequential event, a process. One piece builds on the next until finally their wrists are wrapped and they become one. Then comes the third part. This is the part that creates probably more anxiety than almost any other part. And this is where we have to go to becoming for mature audiences only. And we look at this differently today than they did last in the ancient times. Because then came the consummation of the marriage. I want you to think for a second, those who are married, about the wedding night and knowing that wherever you have that wedding night, there are 20 people standing outside that door ready to come in once you're done. How's that feel for you? Because this is what would happen. To assure the fact that the bride had been pure and a virgin before the wedding is once the consummation took place, the couple would leave the room and 20, no less than 20 people would come into that room to inspect the sheets. If there was blood on the sheets, everything was fine. If there was no blood on the sheets, 
then there was a problem. And there are a whole lot of physiological reasons around that, which I won't go into this morning. But I want you to imagine, because this group was the rabbi, the fathers, the bridesmaids and groomsmen, if you will, called different things, and a number of other witnesses who would come in to attest that the fact that there was blood on the sheets. Blood mattered, and mattered a great deal in the midst of this whole idea of wedding. Then, once the proof is there, the proof of purity is there, then comes the party. Then comes the feast. But here's the deal about the feast. The whole purpose of the feast was really to prove that these two, this couple, and these two families were financially viable. How do we know that? Because at the feast, you had an enormous amount of food, enough that every single person invited to the feast could eat their fill and more. It was all about abundance. And that there was enough wine to get everybody there drunk. And they would drink to their fill and more. And families would save from the day the contracts were signed till the day of the feast to prepare for that feast, that celebration. Sometimes they went without food, even for a year, to make sure that they would not be embarrassed at the time of that feast, whether it was in food or in wine. But there was a strategy to all this. And the strategy was, you always put the minor amount of really good wine out there first. And then when people began to get kind of tired and tipsy, the steward would come in and remove that wine and replace it with the cheap wine. So that people could get drunk on cheap wine. They would do the same with the food. The lamb and the, the incredibly beautiful side dishes would come out first, and as people got full, the stewards would come in and remove that food and bring the cheap food out. But it was still a celebration. The most embarrassing thing in that whole series of events, the most embarrassing thing beyond clean sheets, was running out of food or wine. And we need to have that in our heads if we're to understand the purpose of this story. So let's go back for just a second. As we look at the Gospel of John and as we look at the whole purpose of Jesus being on this planet, those four elements come into play and each one of those elements are significant in what's coming in his life. First we look at the contract. And the contract the symbolism of the contract is the contract that was there between God and humanity. And we called those contracts covenants. And I want to remind you that Jesus said, I bring you a new covenant. And we'll come back to that in just a minute. And Jesus becomes the living piece of that new covenant, that new contract. The contract changes because of him. It's phenomenal when we think about this. But that's only the first element. Because then comes the ceremony. And what does Jesus do but asks the stewards to fill the water jars 
full of water for purification. And that therein lies the ceremony. The ceremony that begins the relationship, this new relationship, the ceremony that is baptism, that initiation into the church. But then what happens? What happens is Jesus changes that water for purification into the wine. I want to remind us when this was written. Somewhere around 100 to 110 A.D. or Common Era. The church was beginning to go through an immense amount of persecution that always involved blood. And what is it that we celebrate? Once a month, the first Sunday of every month that involves for us grape juice, but really in that time was all about the wine. And the wine was that second piece. The wine represented that sacrifice, that element of Jesus bleeding, and there you have the consummation piece, the consummation that involves blood. And whether you believe that Jesus was sacrificed for our sins or whether you believe that Jesus went on to the cross because of the actions and the confrontations that he took, something happened from baptism to death, from water to wine to blood. And there you have the consummation. And by the way, with the understanding that Jesus was absolutely pure. Absolutely pure. And bled for us. To now unite those relationships in a new way between God and humanity. But then we're not done. Because then you have the feast, the celebration. And the celebration is resurrection. The fact that after all of this, something happens that gives us new life. But here's the deal. What's so amazing about this story, beyond those four representative things, is the abundance. And you go back to the wedding feast, and it was all about abundance. And the proof that the families could provide abundance And so here you have six stone jars filled with 20 to 30 gallons of water and now become a lot of wine. Overwhelming amount of wine. God is always about abundance, particularly when it comes to relationships. But here's one of the most often missing pieces in the midst of this scripture is the whole idea of shame. God is not about shame ever. The whole intent of this relationship is to overcome shame, is to overcome guilt, is to realize that the God who is seeking this new relationship with us through Christ (laughs) wants that shame to disappear. Is never, ever, ever about shame. What God provides us in incredible abundance is the ability to move into something more. A depth of love, a depth of peace, a depth of understanding, a depth of acceptance. But that peace, again, that passes understanding and comes in such abundance that it's hard to accept 
hard to realize that that's what God intends. But then it closes with the central statement that comes out of the mouth of Jesus' mother, Mary. And do you remember what that statement was? Do whatever He tells you. And therein lies the key. To really get all of this and be receiving of all of this abundance, there is that one statement that defines how. And it is, do whatever He tells you. And friends, that's what Lent is all about. It's what we do in this time, in the calendar year of the church, is we create space so that we can engage more deeply in time with that incredible power that seeks to be in relationship with us. Surrounds us, woos us, loves us, seeks to help us overcome whatever it is that keeps dragging us down and helps us remember that there is resurrection even in this life. And our role is to help each other and the world realize it. Wow. What an incredible story. And this was but the first miracle of Jesus. And there were many, many more to come. It's, it's a phenomenal story and beautifully sets up what Lent is about. It's amazing once we understand it. Will you pray with me? God, in this time of Lent, help us create that space so that we might receive even that greater understanding, that deeper understanding that, that, that literally ignites us and lights us up helps us realize that that we are that outward invisible sign, very much like a wedding ring of your love and your relationship with us. And Christ defines it for us and help us create opportunities to do what Mary asked of the stewards. Do whatever He tells you. May this be a time where we discover even more deeply what it is we are called to be and what it is we are called to do. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.